Welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today Austin Rupp is gracing us with his presence. Hey, Austin. Hello, Stephen. Hello, world. That's a nice-looking beard you've got going. A little scruffy, very gray. Rapidly, the gray is rapidly accelerating, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> but, you know, I guess that's what uh, COVID, a kid, and uh, life does to you, right? You're not gray at all. No, I have eternal youth, so. Nice. But yeah, no, uh, you just finished the week of, of service, yeah? That I did. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, the COVID numbers are way down. That's great. It feels yeah. like the hospital feels, despite masks and whatnot, like it's getting somewhat back to normal, you know? Um, a lot of normal stuff yeah i do cirrhotics as it were (laughs) i'm gonna say i think the most common thing we're seeing right now is alcohol and liver disease like every week i've been on recently i've had multiple decompensated cirrhosis patients and, and a lot of new cirrhosis diagnoses and a lot of alcoholic hepatitis actually so it's been you know kind of depressing in that way but the liver is a very interesting organ. So I I think, you know, those patients are interesting patients, but I feel bad for them because they don't do very well. Well, there's really not much we can do, right? Should we just end the podcast now? (laughs) Um, That's not true. You're right. We can, uh, we need more liver transplants. There need to be more livers to go around. Um, Yeah, I guess we're just sort of hopping in, huh? But uh, I've always wondered about, living donor transplants and how that works at other centers because we don't do those that's completely off topic but you know um that's a common question i get that i've gotten recently that got me thinking um mm-hmm. yeah you're right you have to you have to try and recognize the interesting pathophysiology that goes on when the liver shuts down right and that's uh, a way to maybe you know sort of uh deflect or avoid how how terrible cirrhosis is well, it also just helps me keep track of the things that I can do, even if it feels like you're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic a little bit. Like, and when you're teaching, uh, you know, medical students or other trainees, it's 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 nice to 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 show them how important the the liver is by all the things that go wrong when the liver stops working, and and educate the patients on that as well. So, but anyway. Uh, how about the Utah Jazz? <laughs> yeah, well, they're uh, cruising. Best record in the NBA, huh? The Three All-Stars. In the nation. That's right. That's right. We, uh, we're chugging along. All-Star break. We slid into the All-Star break a little bit uh, dysfunctionally. Not dysfunctionally, but we lost a couple games. So I'm hopeful that they'll bounce back. And um, hopeful that the All-Star break was good for Mike, Rudy, and Dono. And, uh, yeah, it could be an interesting, interesting end of the season. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, we'll obviously make the playoffs, so then I just need to find a legal way to watch those games. I yeah. See. I could help you with the, with, with the all but the legal part of that. <laughs> it's very frustrating to me. When I was a kid growing up, I could just turn on Channel 14 K-Jazz and watch any jazz game I wanted. And now it's impossible to watch them unless you own, like, have cable. And I'm not going to pay for cable like some sucker. Times are a-changing. 
How's uh, Baby Gus doing? I was just about to ask you how Alyssa is. Uh, Baby Gus is good? Yeah, I mean, he he's doing what he's supposed to, just like he has been. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know. He, you run a tight ship. Do what you're supposed to, Gus. Well, I mean, it's, you know, um, continues to be a mixed bag over here. Sometimes, you know, he cries inexplicably, and that makes me frustrated, if I'm being totally honest, not to get too vulnerable and weird with everyone. But, like, you know, having a baby is not always uh, – roses and butterflies or whatever um but kirsten's amazing and um he's growing and healthy and you know we're very happy but to be honest i struggle with the other you know some things that he does completely inexplicably sometimes and you know he doesn't give you a lot back yet which is also um Hmm. you know what he's not supposed to but it's like you know uh he smiles which is fantastic but you can wave a rattle in front of his face all day long and he's not going to do anything with it. So anyway, again, not to be vulnerable and weird, I'm very happy with my son and my wife is amazing. Um, but you know, there's some, there's, there's a flip side to things a little bit sometimes too. <laughs> the dark side of parenting. <laughs> yeah. Maybe well, you know just, what I'm talking wait, about. Just wait, until, uh, just wait until he can actually vocally, you know, tell you you're the worst father in the entire world. <laughs> You know, like my kids have weaponized that phrase to the point where it means nothing to me anymore. <laughs> now we're, we're going in a different direction. For- I don't remember saying that to my parents ever. Anyway, no, uh, yeah, I mean, having the, having the baby has is, is, is been really fun. I think, uh, you know, we haven't had a baby in the house for eight years. So, like, definitely getting used to some things again. But she's been, like, so much easier than our kids were. But we're more bottle feeding, which is easier. And, and yeah, she just, like, she sleeps five to six hours at night sometimes. It's just, like, unreal. So she's – and she's just really cute. She's not, you know, doing a lot of interactive stuff yet, but that's okay. She kind of just likes to snuggle. Well, is it true that uh, – I mean, we want Gus to, you know – I want him to walk like he's obviously not going to do that right now but you know I want him to meet his milestones as quickly as possible and like start giving me stuff back like as quickly as possible but the saying is that the first time parents want that whereas the repeat parents just want that to be delayed for as long as possible do nothing for as long as possible (laughs) is that true I think there's probably some truth to that yeah I mean or you you just want them to to get there when they're ready and uh and you know the sooner they're walking the sooner they're into everything and so why rush that part of it right I don't know what it is exciting when they walk so but I mean yeah or even when they roll over or crawl all of those milestones are exciting but but yeah no I think when 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 Gus is like ten years old, you're gonna be like, man, why did I want that to go by so fast? <laughs> I wish he was. I wish he was two months old again. <laughs> yeah. Fair anyway, enough. Anyway, anyway, well, last week we uh, we had uh, Dr. Spivak on, and we talked about tocilizumab trials, and and we did that to spare Austin any more discussion of tocilizumab. He he doesn't want to hear about it anymore. But I do need to mention that the NIH did update their guidelines in response to those papers this week. And so, you know, their panel is now recommending that we do use tocilizumab in combination with dexamethasone for certain hospitalized patients, basically patients who have rapid respiratory decompensation. And we all know who those patients are because we've seen them. 
Um, but basically it's patients who are in the ICU on high flow or on non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation. And then uh, patients not in the ICU, but who have rapidly increasing oxygen needs who are now on high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. And if they have elevated markers of inflammation, um, there's not like a specific cutoff. They do reference the recovery trial cutoff of a CRP of 75. That's milligrams per liter, which um, when Dr. Spivak and I were talking about it, we got a little confused by the, by the units because that's not the units we use in the hospital. That, that number is, you know, quite high. Ours, ours is going to be more like in the teens. But anyway interesting to think about as we see fewer and fewer COVID patients in the hospital. Um, if you have one of those patients that rapidly decompensates and has escalating oxygen needs, think about tocilizumab for that person. I hope I never have to use it, but we'll see what happens. Amen. You've been on the tocilizumab train. Well, not really, but you, <laughs> you're the tocilizumab Zen master. So honestly, defer to you just trying um, to keep track of stuff you know fair enough you know who that you you don't know who those patients are until you do know right <laughs> it's yeah like, <laughs> yeah i mean they they come in you're like oh you're on four well I, I feel like they're usually on four to six liters and then like you admit them the night before the day of and then like within a few hours they're like on 10 liters now and you're like well shoot wonder what your crp is probably high better give you <laughs> but i haven't been checking it on anybody so Maybe we you're should. Not, it. You're not trending CRPs, D dimers, LDHs, and uh, ferritins anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I never was. Fair enough. Great. Thanks for the review. Yeah, you're yeah, welcome. And, and I did listen. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have Dr. Spivak back on. She's fantastic, as all as are all our guests. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed listening to that one as a just you know the general general population regular regular old guy. <laughs> Well, uh, we only have two papers to talk about this week, thankfully, and, and, uh, and they both came out in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 4th, and they're both about treatment of patients with cirrhosis, so kind of cool that they published them at the same time, but I'll let you do your paper first. All righty, cool. Well, I'm going to be talking about um, a randomized trial of albumin infusions in hospitalized patients with cirrhosis. So like Stephen said, this came out in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 4th of this year. Um, it was published by Dr. China and colleagues um, and is called the ATTIRE trial, which uh, stands for, hmm, uh, <laughs> hang on, oh, albumin to prevent infections and chronic liver failure. Don't know where they get a tire from. But anyway, um, the background here is that liver disease is highly prevalent, deadly, and hard to treat. Um, it's associated with increased risk for infection and renal disease. And uh, this paper, this trial, was conducted in the UK where um, alcoholic hepatitis and alcoholic cirrhosis, um, very similar to the United States, are um, the leading causes of liver disease, liver failure, and you know death from said uh, liver disease. So um, further background is that hypoalbuminemia has been associated with increased mortality in cirrhotics with infections and that in preclinical studies, albumin administration decreased inflammation. Um, it's been studied in a variety of conditions associated with cirrhosis, including hepatic encephalopathy, SBP, non-spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, hyponatremia, and ascites. 
but the results of clinical trials have been quite mixed. Um, the only acceptable or accepted indications for albumin administration currently are after large volume paracentesis with SBP, or you know, those are separate, large volume paracentesis, SBP, and hepatorenal syndrome, um, and, and the authors admit that even there, the data is mixed. Um, for example, a recent meta-analysis meta showed that no interventions decreased mortality in HRS, which Stephen will talk more about here in a second, but this meta-analysis predated um, the article we'll talk about. But that's kind of the main problem, is that, um, you know, like we had sort of uh, indicated earlier, we're, we're sort of grasping at straws with liver disease a little bit, um, rearranging deck chairs, you know, we don't have great treatments for, for a lot of the sequelae of liver disease and um, really struggle, you know, the only treatment for the underlying condition is, is transplantation. So, um, attire sought to investigate if albumin infusions to target an albumin level above three grams per deciliter would reduce infections, renal failure, and death among hospitalized patients with decompensated cirrhosis. Um, I kind of wondered if this was a, a good question to study. I guess we could talk about that at the end. You know, it seemed like this was sort of, in my opinion, um, maybe doomed to fail from the beginning, and I'm not trying to give too much away. But anyway, <laughs> um, we'll talk about that. Or maybe go ahead and jump in if you want, Stephen. Well, they do mention, you know, that they had done previous work that, you know, found this association between low albumin and worse outcomes, right? So if you have a cirrhotic who has low albumin, they're going to have worse outcomes. And so that's kind of the hypothesis generator is if we could increase their albumin, maybe that would improve outcomes. But to me, that's a pretty big leap, right? Because the number is low because they're sick. Right, mm -hmm. like a marker of how sick they are, and changing the numbers artificially to me that doesn't really make sense that it would necessarily change the outcome. But I think that's where it all started. Right, was this preclinical work they did, and and so that's why they want to test this hypothesis. Yes, good points. Um, yeah, they do talk about how they had also done some preclinical work that showed decreased inflammation with albumin infusions. And to be honest, I didn't look you know what that means but yeah maybe the crp goes down or something so a little bit of a leap but anyway they they you know worth worth maybe worth looking into because again we have very limited um, interventions for these folks so um, attire was a prospective interventional multi-center randomized open label therefore not blinded trial involving hospitalized patients with decompensated cirrhosis acute complications and an albumin level below three grams per deciliter they, you know, again, this was in the UK, so they all, they're talking about 30 grams per liter, but for our, you know, for our folks and, and here in the US, we use grams per deciliter, so um, three is the magic number. Um, the patients were basically typical liver patients. Exclusions um, included a predicted length of stay less than five days, um, advanced hepatocellular carcinoma with a prognosis of less than eight weeks, patients receiving only palliative care, and patients receiving only palliative care. So that's a little bit, that was a little bit nebulous to me. Um, you know, like, are they admitted for hospice reasons? Wasn't, wasn't quite sure what that meant, but was an exclusion criteria. Um, patients were randomized based on where they went, their MELD score, the number of dysfunctional organs that they had, antibiotic use, and albumin level. Uh, the intervention here was infusion of 20% albumin to target a serum albumin level of 3.5 grams per deciliter. They aimed for 3.5 so that they could achieve a level of 3.0 based upon previous studies and a failure to maintain the, the albumin concentration above 3 when they actually aimed for 3, so they targeted 3.5. 
To achieve this goal, they infused 20% albumin daily with the dose according to the serum albumin level. They have a little chart in the supplementary appendix that talks about the guidance there, but folks were getting a lot of albumin um, in this trial. Um, if patients had a large volume TAP, HRS, or SBP, they received albumin according to the guidelines in both arms, so that's notable. Um, albumin was infused for a maximum of 14 days or until discharge or until the patient was deemed medically fit for discharge. So if they were just sort of hanging out waiting for a sniff or whatever, um, they, you know, ended, ended the follow-up at that point. The other group got standard care. So uh, the primary endpoint here was a composite of infection of any cause, kidney dysfunction, or death from any cause at days 3 through 15 at day of discharge or at day they were deemed medically fit for discharge. They started on day three because they wanted to give albumin a chance to work. They note that, quote unquote, some patients died very quickly and were unlikely to benefit from albumin. So these events were not included in the analyses, um, which I guess is reasonable. But, you know, just again, speaks to sort of how sick these folks are and can be and how quickly they can decompensate. Um, infection was defined by the clinic or by the attending clinician diagnosing infection. Um, kidney dysfunction was defined as a 50% or greater increase from creatinine at randomization, an increase in creatinine of 0.3 milligrams per deciliter in less than 48 hours, or initiation of renal replacement therapy. Um, so, sort of just the accepted definition of AKI or going on dialysis. Uh, there were a lot of secondary endpoints, but to kind of cut to the chase with those, none of them were, were different between either group, so we're not really going to talk too much about them. Um, overall, 829 patients underwent randomization out of 9,273 screened, um, so that kind of made me wonder if they were maybe not that typical of liver patients, um, but the most common exclusion reasons were predicted length of stay less than five days and an albumin of greater than three. Um, patients were pretty well matched at baseline. They had a mean age of 54 and around 30% in both arms were female. The vast majority were alcoholic cirrhosis patients, um, about 90% in each group. Uh, the most common reasons for admission were ascites, which was 62% in the albumin uh, group and 80% in the standard care group, and cephalopathy, which was 21% versus 17%, and suspected variceal bleed, 14 versus 16%. So um, again, I thought pretty representative of what folks are admitted for um, with liver disease. Uh, a few further baseline characteristics, the mean albumin level was 2.3, the average length of stay was 8 days, um, notably 26 and 28% were diagnosed with infection at the time of randomization, and 51% and 50% in the albumin and standard arms, again, uh, received antibiotics. And the details there weren't specified, but I, you know, sort of wondered how that might have affected their primary outcome of infection. Um, MELDs were 19.6 and 19.5 at randomization, which is significantly different from uh, your paper, Stephen, and you know, isn't really that sick of, of liver patients. Um, and the creatinine was greater than 1.5 and about 10% in both arms, which I thought you know, might be representative of who might have had HRS um, at admission. But um, really, you know, again, I think representative of liver patients, but maybe not quite that sick. So uh, the results were that, I mean, I guess other, other stuff to know was that a median of 200 grams of albumin was infused in the albumin arm and 20 grams in, in the standard arm. Uh, the mean albumin level was three or higher days, three, three through 15 in the albumin arm, so they were able to reach their goal. 
Um, but 200 grams of albumin is a significant amount of albumin. Um, you know, we can talk more about cost later, but um, these folks, the folks in the albumin arm got a lot of albumin and they did reach the goal of three grams per deciliter. So in an intention to treat or the intention to treat analysis, um, 113 out of 380 in the albumin arm and 120 out of 397 in the standard arm had the primary outcome event. So that's 29.7 versus 30.2% with an odds ratio of 0.98 and a p-value of 0.87. So no difference between both arms. And really, they, they talk about several different analyses that they do. You know, there were some people where the, the death was maybe like a little bit, you know, they, it took them a little while to figure out when they had died. And so there were different analyses done with that. Um, there were subgroup analyses. None of it mattered. And there was no difference between the arms. Um, and again, the secondary outcomes showed no differences between the albumin and the standard of care arms. Most notably, there were no differences in death at 28 days, three months, or six months. So no difference in the primary outcome, which included death in the first three to 15 days, nor down the line. Um, so, you know, not really any difference between albumin and standard of care groups. Um, and then there were much, many more adverse events in the albumin arm than the standard of care arm. Overall, 87 versus 72 serious adverse events. And some of those included pulmonary edema, volume overload, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, the conclusion for me here was that albumin, targeting a serum albumin of three versus standard of care in folks with liver disease admitted for whatever reason um, made no difference in infections, kidney disease, or death, which are three important things within liver disease, and we should not do this. Um, you know, I, like I said, it seemed to me like this sort of wouldn't work from the get-go, because like you said, you know, the, the albumin level is just sort of a surrogate for how sick they are. Um, you know, I mentioned a little bit about how a lot of people were screened and not enrolled, but I think at the end of the day, this was fairly representative of, of you know, liver disease population. Um, I talked about the antibiotic use, you know, that's probably typical for liver folks. You're not sure if they have, you know, a GI bleed or SBP or an infection when they come in. So a lot of times you will hit them with ceftriaxone or an antibiotic. Um, but I wonder if that had something to do with the outcome, which included infection. Um, and then, you know, I sort of wonder, I mean, we can't apply this broadly, but does this call the use of albumin, you know, in anything sort of, um, into question. I mean, I know there's good data, there's, you know, trials for SBP and it makes sense in, in HRS and um, I can't, you know, reliably quote that data myself, but, um, you know, is, is giving albumin really helping these people? <laughs> so those were my thoughts. what do you think, Stephen? No, I, I agree with all that. I think, you know, really what this trial shows is if you pour a bunch of colloid into a patient eventually they will get pulmonary edema <laughs> like and like you have these decompensated cirrhotics come in they're already grossly hypervolemic right a lot of them they're you know edematous they got ascites and and just pouring more volume into them without a good reason is it to me doesn't make any sense and so I'm, you know, I'm not super surprised by the outcome. I, I would have been more surprised if there wasn't, you know, a benefit with giving that much albumin. The 200 grams versus 20 grams is interesting to me. Like, you know, if you do have a patient with SBP and you're hitting them with guideline-directed albumin, you're going to hit 200 grams, like, in a few days pretty easily. And so it surprised me that the usual care arm, um, you know, average was so low, 20 grams, so that, you know, 
give me 20 grams of albumin is like nothing to me, but, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think this just shows you that targeting the number doesn't matter that much. And really it's all about what they're really sick with and what's the guideline based management for that disease. So interesting trial. Can't wait to pimp med students on it. <laughs> Always good pimp fodder on, on last week in medicine. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to be talking about uh, another article published in New England Journal on uh, March 4th. It was called Terlopressin plus Albumin for the Treatment of Type 1 Hepatorenal Syndrome, also called the CONFIRM trial. And so you got a question? How many trials are called the CONFIRM trial, and what does CONFIRM stand for? Yeah, that is a great question. I don't know what it stands for, and yeah, I'm pretty sure we've talked about previous CONFIRM trials on, on this podcast. Yeah, so yeah, this is another CONFIRM trial. So I think, you know, most people that have been in internal medicine for a while are like pretty familiar with hepatorenal syndrome. It's, it's a pretty, you know, frustrating entity because, you know, the treatments we do have kind of feel like, you know, a Hail Mary sometimes. You just have this really sick patient. You're like, well, we got to try something. And, and so we give them the midodrain, we give them the octreotide, we give them the albumin, and we just kind of pray that they, they start turning around. Because if they don't, it can turn into a death spiral pretty quickly. And I would say most of the patients that I've seen get liver transplants had hepatorrhetal syndrome because they were just circling so fast. Um, and so it really is, you know, a, a tough disease. I remember when I was like a sub eye, that was like probably one of the first patients I had on internal medicine who died was someone with hepatorrhenal syndrome because we just couldn't turn it around. And, you know, I, you know, reading about hepatorrhenal syndrome over the years, you always read about terlipressin, this magical drug that they have over in Europe that the mean FDA won't let us give to patients in America, right? And so I always wondered, like, why can't we give terlipressin? And then, like, you know, a few years ago, I don't remember when it was, like, I found out that the U of U was actually enrolling patients in a terlipressin trial. And I'm not sure if it was the confirmed trial. It could have been. Um, but at that point, I started, like, trying to get all my patients who I thought had a paternal syndrome into that trial because <laughs> I wanted Cause they, to. Because they'd go to the ICU? <laughs> Not that we were doing it on the floor still. They had to be monitored, though. They needed, like, telemetry monitoring, basically. But um, they'd get, like, reflex bradycardia and stuff. But so I – and, and I, I, I could have sworn, like, anecdotally, all the patients that I had that got randomized to terlipressin, they always got better. And so that either means that terlipressin was great or they didn't really have hepatorenal syndrome, right? And so I think that's the other pitfall with hepatorenal syndrome is, you know – there's so many things that can cause acute kidney injury and half the time it's just that they're like too dry from their diuretics or something or they have ATN, right? And the ATN just takes a while to get better. And so I, I sometimes tell med students, if your patient's kidney failure gets better, it probably wasn't hepatorenal syndrome. <laughs> but in any case, this trial is a, is a phase three study. Um, and it's, I think it's the third registered trial in the United States that's trying to show that terlipressin has a benefit. Because like I said, they've been using it in Europe based on some smaller trials. The two trials that they did in America already didn't show a benefit and so it hasn't been approved so this was the biggest trial done so far trying to show that it that it helps 
And so just to review, terlipressin is a synthetic vasopressin analog that causes vasoconstriction in the splanchnic and systemic vasculature. So it's supposed to decrease portal blood flow and portal hypertension and redistribute that blood from the splanchnic vessels to the systemic circulation so that you can increase your renal perfusion pressure. So um, for this trial, they included patients who had type 1 hepatorenal syndrome, cirrhosis, societies, and rapidly progressive kidney failure. Interestingly, they chose um, a creatinine of at least 2.25, which is not like your standard consensus definition of hepatorenal syndrome. Really, you just need to have your creatinine go up by at least 0.3, um, but they chose a specific creatinine cutoff, which may actually you know, limit interpretation of the results. Um, they excluded patients if their creatinine got better within 48 hours of diuretic withdrawal and albumin infusions. They also excluded them if their creatinine was over seven, um, if they'd had a large volume paracentesis of more than four liters within the last two days, uh, if they had sepsis, if they had severe cardiovascular disease, or if they'd been on dialysis in the last four weeks. And those are some interesting exclusion criteria because I feel like sometimes patients almost their AKI gets triggered by a large volume paracentesis, and we often attribute that to hepatorenal syndrome, but they excluded those ones. Also, you frequently have patients come in with SBP that triggers hepatorenal syndrome, and they, they excluded patients who had quote-unquote sepsis. So um, maybe that also limits it a little bit. So as part of therapy, you got trilopressin or placebo, and then they strongly recommended that all patients receive albumin. And they recommended one gram per kilogram on day one uh, with a maximum of 100 grams, and then 20 to 40 grams per day thereafter. Uh, their primary endpoint was reversal of hepatorenal syndrome, which they defined as a creatinine of 1.5 or less on two occasions um, up to day 14, and survival without dialysis for at least 10 more days. Uh, clinical failure was defined as starting dialysis, getting a TIPS, receiving another vasopressor off or, uh, open label, and then uh, no improvement in serum creatinine by day four, or if the serum creatinine had not decreased to less than 1.5 by day 14. So if you look at baseline characteristics of the patients, they were pretty well matched. The average age was 54. 60% were male, 67% of the liver failure was due to alcohol use, 40% of patients had alcoholic hepatitis, your average serum creatinine at time of enrollment was 3.5, and the average MELD was 33. So these were fairly sick patients, right? Um, so um, as far as the results, they enrolled 300 patients, 199 to terlipressin, 101 to placebo, 83% of the terlipressin patients got albumin, 91% of placebo patients got albumin, 60% of patients got midodrine and octreotide 48 hours before enrollment, but they had to stop those for those 48 hours uh, to join the trial. Uh, so the percentage of patients who had verified reversal of hepatorenal syndrome, so the primary endpoint, was 32% for terlipressin and 17% for placebo. So that was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.006. So terlipressin did reverse hepatorenal syndrome. This is a positive trial in that regard. Um, interestingly, in 58 so there was 58 patients in the terlipressin arm who had reversal. 17% of them ended up having recurrence of their hepatorenal syndrome within 30 days. So it's, you know, it only works as long as they're on it, kind of. Um, 
And then there was no significant difference in 90-day mortality between the groups. The 90-day mortality was 51% in the turlopressin arm and 45% in the placebo arm. The most common cause of death while receiving therapy, so in those 14 days when they're on the medicine, um, was respiratory failure, which occurred in six patients in the turlopressin arm. And the most common cause of death at 90 days was liver failure. Um, but then there was uh, significantly more respiratory failure causing death in those 90 days in the turlopressin arm, 11% versus 2% in the placebo. So, um, yeah, this is an interesting study because it shows that turlopressin does, in fact, help improve kidney function in patients who have hepatorenal syndrome. But on the flip side, those patients also had um, more respiratory failure causing death. And it kind of relates a little bit to your paper, Austin, in the sense that some of that respiratory failure was likely driven by albumin, right? You, you load up these patients with albumin, you increase their preload, and then you give them turlopressin, which increases their afterload. And that's like a respiratory, or a, sorry, a recipe for respiratory failure, right, for pulmonary edema. And so I think this is an interesting study. It would be interesting to see the, you know, it, to the, the effects of turlopressin without a lot of albumin to see if that would be more beneficial. And maybe that's a, a study that needs to be done in the future. But I wonder, based on these results, whether you know, the FDA will approve turlopressin for the use of the renal syndrome here in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a few thoughts or questions. You know, um, you hit on this, but the diagnosis of, of you know, HRS is, is typically can be fairly challenging, you know, diagnosis of exclusion, right? So lots of things cause AKI and, and um, you know, diagnostic clarity can be pretty challenging. So, you know, I wonder if this was a more heterogeneous group than, than you know, we recognize. Um, but yeah, the diagnosis can be hard. And then this might be a dumb question, but like, can you reverse HRS? <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess um, they showed that you can and you can get a, a, you know, an increase or a decrease in your in your creatinine, but you're still not addressing the underlying pathophysiology, right? The, I mean, you are with the turlopressin they're proposing, but, you know, the liver dysfunction and splanchnic vasodilatation just comes back, presumably, like, like you said. So, um, you know, I'm not sure, I guess, which leads to my next question, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? Um, the, the folks in the turlopressin arm actually got less transplants than, you know, the, the non-turlopressin arm or the placebo arm. And so in my mind, I guess, you know, you'd have to ask hepatology and nephrology, I guess, potentially, but are you, I mean, you're, you're trying to avoid dialysis, right? I mean, because that was in the outcomes, um, but, it, but you're trying, it seems like you're just trying to avoid dialysis and needing a kidney or a liver kidney transplant, right? And so, um, you know, the outcome is is reasonable, obviously. I mean, you want your creatinine to be better. You don't want to be on dialysis, but how does that impact their long-term care and their transplant candidacy is, is sort of my main questions. And, you know, we never see people long-term through these processes. Like we do our absolute best to try and, you know, prevent them from dying from, from liver kidney disease and try to get their creatinine down and try to get their bilirubin down and, you know, try to 
target, you know, we're not targeting a meld, but we try to get them a transplant in any way we can and keep them alive long enough to get them a transplant. But the nuts and bolts of that are not something that I'm well versed in and sort of understanding who does actually get a liver kidney transplant, you know, based on what their creatinine did or is doing or whether they're on dialysis or not, again, is something that I don't really have a good grasp of. Um, so maybe we needed an expert, <laughs> but, um, you know, just those, those are kind of the main questions that I have. And, and I guess the only other thought that I had was that I thought we were sending these patients to the unit. Um, I could be wrong on that, but what's kind of, you know, we, they didn't look at any sort of burden of care, you know, what's the cost for terlipressin if you're in the unit, what's your, you know, what's your length of stay, your cost, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that coupled with the adverse events, I wonder if the risks actually outweigh, you know, the benefits in some way, or at least are equivalent. Um, so an interesting paper, good food for thought. Um, you know, yeah, we'll see what the FDA does and we'll see what the hepatologists, you know, tell us to do. Um, but good to know. Yeah, no, like you said, like, at 90 days, there really wasn't a difference in mortality, which is like the ultimate outcome that matters, right? And these people were very sick in both arms, whether they got the terlipressin or not, they had other bad things happen to them, right? Like, you know, bleeding, infections, et cetera. Um, and, and so, yeah, whether, you know, whether terlipressin really made a big difference in the long term. It is interesting that there were fewer transplants done in the terlipressin arm and they don't have the, the meld data to kind of compare why that might be. Cause like theoretically their melds could have been better because they had less kidney failure, maybe that's why they didn't get transplants, or maybe the terlipressin was making them too sick to transplant because they had too much respiratory failure, and so they weren't a good transplant candidate at that moment. I don't know. Like, they, they don't break it down uh, in, in a way that's, you know, that we can actually tell. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, ultimately, I think we, we do need to do a better job in this country of preventing liver disease, and that means, you know, better better diet, better lifestyle, less alcohol consumption. I don't know how you can affect that. Um, you know, we tried a constitutional amendment that didn't work out so well. <laughs> but like, yeah. I mean, the burden of liver disease is only going to get worse. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we can find some, some therapies that actually help people. Well, I think uh, I can hear you know, some tantrums happening in the background of my house. I don't know if you can hear those. So I think I better go help my wife. But um, good to see you as always. And uh, yeah, have a good week.